0: And welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Last year, the Academy, in partnership with the New York University School of Medicine, the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation, and the Associated Medical Schools of New York, hosted a conference on the subject of health disparities. Socioeconomics are much more important to health than the medical community has traditionally acknowledged. One important element of trying to fix this problem is to address the need for, and barriers to, health equality in the medical education system. Med schools teach more than how to treat diseases. They instill values in their students that manifest down the pipeline in the forms of research agendas, methods of patient care, and future education designs. It was proposed at the conference that medical universities should do a better job of reaching out to deliberately serve more diverse communities, and also to nurture more diversity within the medical community itself. In this podcast, we'll be hearing from Dr. Mark Nivey of the Association of American Medical Colleges and Dr. Arthur Kaufman of the University of New Mexico. First, here's Dr. Nivey. Maybe surprisingly, the idea of disparity and diversity in healthcare is relatively new to medical institutions. Can you please walk us through how the concept appeared on the academic radar and how it's changed over time?
1: Sure. You know, historically, I think we've thought about um, having more diversity as an important uh, element of, you know, righting past wrongs in our society, of of sort of expanding opportunity for all of our citizens. And I think that remains, you know, undergirds and remains a critical element of of why we want more diversity. We certainly want, um, you, you know, to give as much opportunity to all students as possible. But I think we've come to recognize that we are deficient um, as a nation if we don't harness all of the talent that really exists out there um, in every community. And we're starting to um, create what I would, I guess, call the business case for diversity in the health professions and in the biomedical research space as well, which is to say that the the benefits of diversity don't just – You know, help those particular minority students or underrepresented students. It actually helps all students because it informs and ensures and helps all students become more culturally competent. In some cases, linguistically competent. Um, So there's this dividend of diversity that extend beyond simply, um, again, the individual student. But having that, you know, diversity of perspective in a classroom or in any environment, certainly, we've come to see that, you know, when we have these complex problems that we're all struggling with, whether it's in healthcare or in education, the two biggest places that we have, you know, huge, complex issues, um, you really need individuals from different backgrounds, with different heuristics, different perspectives, to allow for, um, you know, better solutions, getting to solutions faster, and, and hopefully, ultimately, better solutions.
0: What problems arise from not promoting diversity in medicine?
1: Um... So, you know, we know from uh, evidence that um, individuals choose to research things that they're interested in, that they're curious about. So it, it, it's not dissimilar from the, the rationale I just mentioned of having individuals who come from different backgrounds, who have different interests, who have family members who may have had particular illnesses that have sparked their curiosity um, so expanding the biomedical research uh, workforce, really expanding the, the research workforce writ large, is really critical to addressing some uh, issues that may not have been uh, researched by, you know, the current population who's doing research, whether that's at NIH or NSF. And so I, I think that the, the real rationale and probably the most critical rationale of having that diverse research workforce is that people do research that they are particularly interested in, and that's what makes them successful. And so we want to have people who come from these underserved communities doing research that may interest them, whether it's on that particular uh, population or not, but we certainly want to bring their talents to the table.
0: What should be the role of medical universities in nurturing a more diverse medical culture? And that's a critical
1: question. I think, you know, what I've noticed is our our institutions are um, pretty good at finding the talent that exists out there. And in fact, our institutions um, sort of compete for a very narrow pool of uh, either minority students or underserved students or even faculty for that matter. And I think going forward, what what really needs to happen is our institutions, all of our institutions need to have a more of a uh, sort of grow your own strategy Reaching deeper into the pipeline, engaging with um, students as early as as um, you know high school and maybe even junior high school, because we know we've got great evidence that once students are not taking algebra or not passing algebra by the eighth grade, they're sort of off the pipeline. They're out of the pipeline for. Any STEM career, any research career, any health professional career, and we've known that actually since the 1970s when reports were written about that. Yet we don't have many effective interventions in our communities um, that are led by our um, academic medical centers or our universities writ large. Um, and we, I think the reason for that, it's hard for our universities to um, imagine themselves effectively making some um, changes in the in the K through twelve system. But I think given where we are with technology and and what that affords us in terms of leveraging the science and math acumen that resides in our universities, I think the days of being sort of passive recipients of the talent that you know applies to us as universities, um, it is really gone. I think we have to actively engage in building the talent pool um, in, in all of our communities. And so I think the way I think about developing talent is we need to take a systemic approach, work with our K through 12 systems, work with our community colleges and really have sort of what I call an anchor institution approach that we are responsible. We don't just sit in this community, but we are of the community um, as a university and actively engage in building that talent pool, and the reason for that is we are institutions that are designed, for the most part, are designed to be here, you know, to be here in perpetuity. And so we can't think about only the next five years or even the next ten years. But what does the next fifty years look like, given the demographic changes we have in this society? Um, what does the next one hundred years look like? So our institutions have to change the trajectory. Um, of of the talent pool, and, and I think that we are capable of it given the, the again, science and math and overall talented um, individuals who work on our campuses.
0: With budget and time constraints... Can teachers and students realistically be expected to take on that kind of community engagement?
1: Yeah, I think that you know that's a great question. I, I think um, the first thing that we have to do is to really catalog our efforts at whether it's an individual campus or, you know, a system, a university system. One thing I, I find, I happen to travel the country um, often, you know, attending these campuses and speaking to leaders. One thing I find is... People don't know what wonderful work is happening in the school next door um, and sometimes in the same department because there's so much innovation happening and what's missing is, is what I would call knowledge capture. So there's fantastic work going on, but it's not replicated and it's not taken to scale. And in fact, we haven't graded the evidence to make sure it's really working. And what I think is a first step is to, again, catalog the information. But then I think the next step, because um, we're, you know, for the most part, we're all scientists at these institutions in, in some ways. And we're all hypothesis driven. And And what sort of confounds me is that when we come to trying to do this diversity work, we leave that science acumen off the table. We're not hypo- we're not as hypothesis driven. We're not really trying to figure out what works. We're not really grading the evidence of what works. And I think that's because we see this work as our charity work or our contribution to society, versus being more evidence based in developing these kinds of initiatives and developing our faculty. Uh, you know, giving them resources to be more talented mentors and giving them programmatic efforts to to be better at mentoring, to be better communicators. We don't see that as, our, as, our, as the business that we're in. Um, when it comes to resources, when you're evidence-based, you could actually stop doing things that are not working, and there's your money to put into things that we have found actually work. So I'm not sure that it takes much more. I don't think it takes, you know, a, a huge additional investment I would imagine that there's a lot of investment happening, but it's not, um, again, cataloged and utilized and graded to ensure that it's having the, the requisite impact it was designed to have. So, again, if we become more more science or, again, more evidence based in our uh, design and implementation of these initiatives, I think we, we probably have the resources already being spent on, on things that are suboptimal.
0: How should the school curricula be adjusted, or should they be, to address questions of diversity? Well, I, you know, I don't
1: think the, the curriculum is, I wouldn't characterize it as problematic. I, I would say that um, all of our curricula have to continue to advance. And, and I think that's a, you know, a march that our institutions are on. They're constantly, again, innovating when it comes to curricula. And I think what has to happen is things like, in the case of, let's use medical school um, curriculum, for example, oftentimes you'll find we'll, we'll talk about the social determinants of health, all of those things that, you know, impact on an individual's health that reside outside of the, you know, patient care um, aspect. And we talk about that to students but we don't actually infuse it effectively into the curriculum. Now, there are some places that are doing that, um, but that's too far and few between. And I think more of our institutions need to be thinking deeply about the connection between sort of medicine and public health and how do you weave that effectively into the curriculum. And again, places like NYU, um, I think, have begun to do that effectively. Places like Vanderbilt, uh, have begun to do that uh, effectively. So I know there's some bright spots out there that, w- that we can point to, um, but it's, the goal is to not make all of these important uh, issues sort of separate and siloed and often tangential to the real curriculum, but to, again, weave it in effectively and advance the curriculum um, to, to, again, ensure that our you know, clinicians going forward understand what population health is.
0: Thank you. Now we'll hear from Dr. Kaufman. He's played an instrumental role in developing the University of New Mexico's medical curriculum, which requires med students to be trained in social determinants of health. The university has implemented a program called HEROES for health extension rural offices in order to align community needs with university resources. Can you please start off by explaining the HEROES program in more detail?
2: Yeah, so the Hero program is a uh, strategy for uh, decentralizing uh, health science center resources uh, to the different communities across the state by placing full-time agents that are called health extension rural uh, agents or heroes. And their role is manifold, but the, the uh, primary role is to link the community's health priorities with University of New Mexico Health Science Center resources and that can be in any uh, mission area. It could be education, service, research, or even health policy. Uh, That that model has been very successful, um, and it has helped us not only help communities, but helps the university rethink its resources to see how it could better align and develop its resources to be more effective in helping community health. The fact that we're a public institution and we're the flagship uh, University of of New Mexico, and it's the only kind of comprehensive academic health center, we feel we have a special uh, obligation to measurably improve the health of our state. And this is one of the vehicles we're
0: using. At the conference, you described a gap between institutional research agendas and resource allocation, and the health problems facing people in New Mexico. Can you please address that? And what can be done to bring about better alignment between the two?
2: if you look at one measure of that it's a measure of uh institutional uh investment uh and let's take the area of research uh the, uh, the area of research and this is true of most academic health centers uh let's say for new mexico it's brain and behavior it's uh Um, metabolic diseases, it's cancer. Um, Those are the items that have different sections of the National Institutes of Health. That's who funds them. And often we're driven by where dollars come from. But in New Mexico, every county has a comprehensive health planning council. And every several years, they make their list of priorities as to what they think their major health needs are. And if you sum all of those needs, the order is very different from what the Health Science Center has been investing in. So that, for example, the top ones are teen pregnancy, alcohol and substance abuse, uh, violence, and other measures that are very discrepant from what uh, the university has traditionally been investing in. So one of the roles of health extension, for example, is to make sure that the community these priorities not only affect uh, education service, but also affect how we deploy our research um, enterprise, and so more and more of the uh, research is coming from the fields, coming from the priorities. So that that has been very helpful in um, using our uh, Clinical Translational Science Award uh, that about half the health science centers have received in the country because that's very dependent on making sure that what we're studying is reflective of what uh, our communities need.
0: Could you please give some examples?
2: One of the biggest health problems in New Mexico that have come, as I mentioned to you before, that have come from the field is uh, mental health and alcohol and substance abuse. There are simply not enough... um, alcohol, substance abuse, mental health counselors in the state. It's woefully inadequate. And for that reason, uh, one of our health extension coordinators got very interested in bringing to New Mexico this um, this uh, idea of mental health first aid, alerting people in the community, how do you identify early signs of mental health problems among neighbors, among students, among uh, uh, teachers, all walks of life. And so she brought this to New Mexico where they trained a very large number of trainers to then, in their own communities around the state, train many people in mental health first aid. Uh, The issue was, this has never been evaluated. So uh, what she did is, she link this with one of the uh, researchers at the university that is currently studying what is the impact of having the training on subsequent behavior, both of the trainers and those who receive the training.
0: What does it mean to students to be involved in these programs?
2: Let's take a look at education. Many communities have a very hard time recruiting health professionals to their community. Uh, The communities are often poor. They don't sustain the uh, lifestyle that many health professionals are looking for. The schooling system may be weak. So you have all the typical barriers. But what our data shows is that if you can grow your own, if you can uh, encourage local kids to get into health careers, it has multiple advantages. For example, if you can get a local kid to come back as a doctor, that doctor hires eighteen people directly and indirectly, generates a million dollars of business in whatever community they settle in, and so that it's a huge economic boon for that community. And that deals with what I would call the social determinants of health, with just having more people employed, higher incomes, it improves the tax base for schools, uh, for other services in that community. So we know that the role of HEROES and the role of our institution in getting as many health professionals from those local communities into a health career and then back to those communities is a really top priority. So, we have extensive programs where those health extension folks are coordinating the recruitment of kids right out of middle and high school to get interested in health careers. They're, uh, when they are in the health uh, training itself at the Health Science Center, they bring them back to the communities and coordinate their activities, and then they recruit them back into those uh, communities. We've had a great deal of success with that. So, they touch on many areas that are vital to the health of communities in many ways, not just direct services but also economic development.
0: Can you please discuss the importance of studying health at a population level rather than at the individual level only, and how does the University of New Mexico address this?
2: Okay, Uh, if you look at the impact of the health system on the health of any community, it's about 10%. 10% of what makes a community healthy relates to its health system. It's incredibly low. Um, and the question, why is that? And an example I'll give, if you look at the one population in New Mexico that gets the best screening and treatment for diabetes, it's the Native American population, probably because of the Indian Health Service, because of the tremendous number of federal programs that really focus on diabetes. It's, It's just terrific. But you look at the one population that has the highest death rate, from diabetes. It's the same population. It's the Native American population. So here you have very high quality health care and a terrible outcome. Why? It's not that the quality of care is poor. It's that it's way, way downstream where we have less and less of an effect. If you go upstream, meaning what are the causes of poor outcomes in diabetes, diabetes in the first place? It's not just genetics. It's also poor schooling and... I would say the Native American population in mexico has by far the worst high school graduation rate it's down in the low sixties um, and then uh very low employment if you go on most reservations uh- em- unemployment rate is hideously high often it's high, uh, way above fifty percent um, because it's very rural the uh distance travel is often You have to travel by pickup truck, so road accidents are very high, high mortality of injuries um, with social and uh, cultural dislocation, high rates of alcohol abuse. Um, And you look at all of those, and then stress. And then you look at all of those reasons. Well, wait a minute. Those are what are called social determinants. Those are the things that have a much, much, much higher impact on community health than whether or not there's a doctor or nurse in the community. So what we decided is, since social determinants really are really important, that we couldn't afford to have this vast amount of money that goes into our health system and our health education and our research not also address the real causes of what we're seeing in our hospitals and our emergency rooms and our clinics. So we said, well, one thing we could do is strengthen the public health effort by training every medical student in basics and public health so that was the genesis of this that every doctor trained in our medical school has to have regardless of what field they go into has to have a population health perspective so let's say uh, you're a neurosurgeon neurosurgeons have actually in our state taken the lead in figuring out how to decrease accidents on the road how to um, help rural hospitals keep patients who have head injuries, if they can just look at their CT scans you know, via telehealth, taking a population perspective to save communities money to prevent the accidents that are causing neurosurgical catastrophes in the first place. So um, that's the idea, that because physicians have a, an influential position in society, whether it's deserved or not, it's just given to them, they should use that for public good, not just for the good of individuals who walk into their clinic. So you really want to train a competent physician that can do both. So this curriculum is spread out over all four years of medical school and it leads to a 15-credit certificate in public health, which is about a third of the masters of public health. So. It's not that we want all graduates to have to get Masters of Public Health. We want them all to practice in a different way. Now, if they want to go on and get a Masters of Public Health, they can stay with us and spend another year and complete the degree program. They can do that as well. So that's the genesis, the idea of how can you help change the healthcare system. And education's role is very important in terms of the skills we give graduates, the orientation they have, and ultimately where they practice. Because if you're, you turn out great doctors but they don't practice where they're needed, their impact on community health is much, much less.
0: To play devil's advocate, is requiring doctors to become more versed and active in behavior studies and sociology really the best way to address these problems? Why not let them study medicine and have sociologists become better trained in healthcare problems, for example?
2: So my answer is it depends on how people are incented. The way we're incented now maintains physicians' roles being way, way downstream with massive amounts, percentage of our healthcare dollar goes into the last six months of life. Why? Because that's where we make money. And it's not crass as much as, We'll get paid the more things we do. The more procedures we do, the more hospitalizations, that's how we get paid. So the fact that you have health care reform beginning to say, well, wait a minute, maybe the pay shouldn't just go to how many things you do, but what is the actual health outcome? When you keep the health outcome to individuals, it's a step forward. When you do it to communities, now you're really taking a step forward you have a very good question, which is, well, wait a minute. Uh, we're trained in a certain way, so, of course, we're trying to sh- broaden the training. But when you're working in a clinic and when you see, and I'll take my own patients, uh, you know, I see a couple thousand people, when you take a look at those patients and I know that the problems in control of diabetes, control of hypertension, I can write prescriptions until I'm blue in the face. I can talk, but if that person can't afford the prescriptions I'm giving them. And just take a look at insulin. Insulin is incredibly expensive. And if you can't pay for that insulin, you're out of luck. And then you're looking for sometimes pills that are not very effective. If you can't get adequate transportation to go to the follow-up appointment that I've arranged, what good is the appointment? So every at every step of the way, you are faced with these other problems. Now. Who deals with that problem? Every system is poorly funded, but our system, if we are given funds, let's, let's change the, the nature of the, um, uh, of the incentives, which is really what's beginning to happen in a good way. If I'm responsible for keeping my patients healthy and that's how I am incented, now I make my investment on adequate food, adequate transportation, making sure the person uh, has a job, all of those things help me complete my work as a doctor. So how do we do this? Well, one of the ways is changing the nature of the healthcare team. So one of the things we're doing is we've developed a very large community health worker program. Community health worker program fits into everything I've talked about because these are local leaders, they're people who are respected by their communities, they're culturally and linguistically competent, they know everybody in the community, they're chosen by the community, and we employ them. They help us with complicated patients who are having so many social determinants as barriers to them getting care in the health system. So they help with food, clothing, transportation, uh, Uh, what we call health literacy, that is learning why it's important to see a doctor, why it's important to get care in a primary care versus 12-hour wait in an emergency room, why it's important for the rest of the family to get insurance. All of those things are done by a community health worker that can be trained uh, after high school so that we have to look at a very different mix. But that's involved with physicians because the physician often has to write the prescription for that to happen. So there's no way that we can escape our responsibility for looking at those broader issues. Now, let me give you an example. If I go way back uh, to when I was a student, it was breathtakingly modern, if you could believe it, when we talked about the psychosocial aspects of care. Back then, that was seen as, well, that's not medicine. That's that's social work stuff. That's uh, psychologists. That's not doctors. Now, no one would say that. We know that psychosocial areas are very important care of our patients. Today, the new mission creep, if you will, is, well, wait a minute, what about social determinants? So this is, to me, generational, and it's just a broader understanding of what makes people healthy. And we can't simply carve out. Uh, that medicine is only going to take care of what it's comfortable with, which is a way, way downstream procedures and admissions. That's great. We have to do that. But we also see something that we can't ignore. Now, it doesn't mean that physicians have to be working in school systems, getting kids to graduate and go into health careers, but we can work with allies who do that. We have to link with the other what we call sectors of society that have to do with health. And we can do that regardless of what specialty we're in, but we need a broader perspective. And now when you're incenting uh, physicians and health systems to keep people healthy, all of that makes sense. I'll give you another example. One of the things physicians worked on with partners around the state was to develop the first, and I think it's the only one in the country, nurse advice line for everybody, for everybody. What we find is most people who come to the emergency room in the middle of the night don't need to be there, but they're frightened. There's no one to turn to. There's no advice that they get. So we have a 24-7 line, and it's connected to all practices and hospitals so that if a patient calls, let's say someone is a a, a lonely, frightened teenage mother, single teenager, who has a feverish, screaming three-year-old and they don't know what to do they don't should go to the emergency room they can call the line and they'll be given very very good advice as to what to do now there's a comfort to that mother and one of the uh recommendations may be we'd like you to uh, see your doctor in the morning and she may say i don't have a doctor my child is but i don't have and then the line will also say, "Well, here are people in your neighborhood, and we'll help you make the appointment and say, so, "But I don't have a car I'm alone. Oh, so let me arrange transportation. In other words, this is a line that comforts everybody, and it has sharply cut down on unnecessary emergency room visits. It's got people medical homes. Even the Department of Health buys into the line because they can survey the symptoms that people are calling in for with a feature they put on this line and they can quickly pick up where there's outbreaks because of symptoms. Now, this leads to a big message which I want to give, which is this. Because of the nature of the change in healthcare delivery and how it's funded, uh, most public funding is going through managed care most publicly going through managed care. Managed care companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, United, all of them do better when the patients that are enrolled with them, members enrolled in, in their managed care organizations are healthy. This is the opposite of how people may body the past, which is, you know, if I could fill, let's say my hospital, I fill my bed with paying patients, I can survive. Now, there's investment in keeping people healthy. So they, like in New Mexico, they're funding all of these. Like for example, we were given money to train and deploy community health workers, which work with the more complicated patients for the very reasons you just talked about. So they are funding. So automatically they are seeing how social determinants are a critical part of what they must get involved with. And that is now becoming more common within our healthcare system, that people want to have access to those who could do a nutrition education in their clinics, those who could uh, do home visits, those who could uh, deal with the social problems that are interfering with patients uh, learning about their disease and accessing the kinds of resources from medications to visits uh, that they really need.
0: Thank you so much. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. This podcast is presented as part of the Translational Medicine Initiative, a partnership between the New York Academy of Sciences and the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation to foster the translation of basic science discoveries into improved clinical health care. Find out more about this initiative at nyas.org transmed. You can also learn more about health disparities from these experts and their colleagues in a recent online multimedia e-briefing which you can access free of charge at www.nyas.org disparities eb. For more science news, please check out scienceinthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We are Science in the City on Facebook and Sci and the City on Twitter. We always love hearing from you. Thanks for listening.